Nearly one in six people worldwide don't have the physical documentation they need to access healthcare or housing or to vote. But what if you didn't need that piece of paper or plastic? What if it was all digital? What if the act of voting itself was digital too? Instead of driving to a local school or polling center, you could help shape your government within seconds from your own home, saving time worrying about the myriad of other things you have to do on your to-do list. And what if you wanted to order takeout food? Imagine if you could trace each menu item back from its origin to its supply chain to your plate and have full transparency into what you're eating and where it came from. All of these things, digital documentation, voting, and transparency into our food, they're all examples of ways we could use blockchain to enhance our daily lives. But there's so much that isn't well understood about blockchain. On this episode of The Bid, BlackRock's blockchain lead, Robbie Michnik, will walk us through the evolution of blockchain and crypto assets and how blockchain could change the way we live and work. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We hope you enjoy. Thank you, Robbie, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you spearhead our blockchain initiatives at BlackRock. Let's start with a level set for those people who might be a little embarrassed to ask, what is blockchain in one sentence? Well, to start with, I know the big audience is very familiar with you, but they may not know that you actually were the initiator of BlackRock's blockchain exploration. That was not anticipated, but thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's true. So that was, of course, long before I got here. But uh, to answer the question, Blockchain at its core is a special type of database that instead of relying on a central trusted intermediary to authenticate transactions and keep records, you rely on cryptography, i.e. math. And what that enables is a single golden copy of record that can be shared across a network that is perpetually reconciled and from any practical standpoint is impossible to tamper with. That's related to cryptocurrency, but also not necessarily related to cryptocurrency. How? Well, there's a lot of ambiguity out there on that point, too. So cryptocurrency is one application of blockchain. To date, it's the most famous and most successful. But there may be many others out there that gain traction that do not involve cryptocurrencies that are applications of blockchain, particularly in an enterprise context. So speaking of enterprise blockchain, now we can start using the buzzwords for those who do follow it. Before you came to BlackRock, you worked at Ripple, mm -hmm. and they have a, a token or a crypto asset called XRP. You also wrote a paper on the theoretical valuation or the theory to value crypto assets, which is a much debated topic. So what brought you to BlackRock? Well, the early days of blockchain and crypto were very ideological. There was this ethos of the idea that centralized institutions were fundamentally untrustworthy and you had to rip the system down and replace them. And what you've seen in the later evolutions of the industry, the people that have come in later in the game, whether they be technology or finance people, is a much different philosophy, one that sees this really as a technological innovation story, an economic opportunity, and something that enables new capabilities. And so I consider myself part of that. And my philosophy has always been that rather than rip out the existing financial institutions, that the best way for blockchain to get adopted was to be embraced by them. And the slower competitors that don't adopt will be replaced. So I'm clearly biased because I also work here, but I'm a little bit jaded in this area because, as you mentioned, I also started working on this a long time ago in 2015 when BlackRock started our activity in blockchain. And since then, we haven't really seen a lot of 
concepts in production. We haven't actually seen a lot of blockchain adoption at scale among financial institutions. Mm-hmm. So why do you think that is and why are you still hopeful? I think it's really not so much a story of people overestimating the usefulness of the technology as it is one of people underestimating the difficulty of implementing it. There's a number of reasons for that. One, decentralized governance is a whole new paradigm that doesn't have a lot of precedence, doesn't have a lot of templates. Can you explain what decentralized governance is and how it's different from, like, distributed, for example? Right, right. So in a decentralized model, you don't have a single entity that controls authoritatively how a network should run and does not own the data or technology behind it. And so that is a lot more complicated when you have to have multiple parties working together and agreeing on what that framework looks like. And in an enterprise context, you don't have a ton of templates and examples to work off of. So that's been a challenge. Secondly, the need to line up many ecosystem participants, each with different processes and standards, all simultaneously and get them to adopt a new network, a new technology paradigm at once is really difficult. And then the last thing is, this is something that's still not that well understood by a lot of large institutions. And the scale of disruption is broad. You're talking about, in many cases, taking multiple disparate legacy systems and replacing them with a single blockchain-based model. That's going to take time. So what do you think is least understood? You say that it's not that well understood today. There's no shortage of blogs, Reddit threads, at this point even documentaries about blockchain technology. So what are people still missing? There's a narrative out there that was once true really three to four years ago that I would say is not anymore, which is that fundamentally blockchain can't scale. And it was a limitation for sure three to four years ago, but the space has come a long way since then thanks to the massive amount of human and financial capital that's coming to the industry. Now, scale is still a limitation for certain decentralized, permissionless networks because it is a fundamentally difficult trade-off to have decentralization, speed, and security all at once. And why is that a trade-off? Just because of the way the technology works. Right. You can have speed and security, but the best way to get that is to have a centralized pool of validators who control the network that's efficient. To have true decentralization requires sacrificing on those so that you have a broad pool of validators working on the network. There's no clustering of power, but as a result, you rely on other methods of generating consensus, which tend to be slower and more difficult to scale. And so if you're willing to sacrifice on true decentralization and have a predetermined set of institutional validators, which in many use cases is a perfectly reasonable trade-off, then actually speed and scale can be orders of magnitude higher. So when is centralization a reasonable trade-off? And I'm thinking, for example, in a regulated financial services context Mm -hmm. where financial institutions, as you said, who have a huge amount of opportunity they could realize if they adopt blockchain technology perhaps, Mm -hmm. want to control who takes part in their network. They are accountable for things that happen in their systems. So is that a situation where centralization makes sense or is it not so much about the actors but maybe the use case and what you're doing? The way I like to think of it is the difference between trustless and imperfect trust. And so if we're talking about an environment where you have to assume that your counterparties are completely anonymous and you assume that they would act with pernicious intentions if given the latitude to do so, then decentralization often is important and is sort of an intrinsic good. So that's like the Bitcoin blockchain. Exactly. Where you have no idea if there are Russian hackers in the system or if it's your grandmother's trying to send something to... Nicaragua. Totally. Okay. And the system has to be able to work there, assuming the worst intentions from your counterparties. Now, in a financial institution context, 
if we're building a blockchain network with a bunch of other ecosystem participants, counterparties, brokers, clients, vendors, etc., there is a different trust environment there. That's what I call imperfect trust, where there's a reputation and there's a sense that these institutions are going to, for the most part, play fairly, but you still have to navigate the complexities of having differing incentives and though being able to marry up a single shared ledger that is effectively the binding golden record. That's a very helpful explanation of how to think about these sorts of trade-offs, what systems sort of lend themselves to different elements of the governance. What are the use cases that you think are the most exciting to you? And then which ones do you think will have the most disruptive impact on financial services? There's such a breadth of use cases within finance that are being explored. And I actually think it's held back some of these projects, to your earlier point, from going into commercialization because it sort of fragmented the attention of the major actors in the space and made it difficult to align on priorities and resourcing a couple of key blockchain projects that could become a utility for the whole industry. But in general, I would say, wherever you have data siloed across multiple systems and you have multiple parties that need to interact to read and write to that data, then you have a recipe for potentially an impactful blockchain use case. So That's if we like think most about, of finance, well, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. So it's things like, of course, payments, KYC, trade finance, derivatives, proxy voting, bank loans, securitized lending, repo. And then beyond that, there's this whole emerging trend of tokenizing financial assets and other real-world assets on a blockchain. So all those will be very much interesting to watch. And how, if at all, is tokenization different from digitization? Well, I think of you can have digitization without tokenization, but you can't have tokenization without digitization. So in many ways, tokenization is a great catalyst for the digitization of financial services, even though it's not strictly a requirement. So, for example, equities today are basically digitized. I can trade them on any app on my mm-hmm. phone. It's essentially information that's passing over the Internet and certain systems, whereas real estate, for example, mm-hmm. not as digitized. So there's a digitization necessary Mm -hmm. to then make them tokens, why does it matter to even make them a token? Like, what is the sort of benefit of a crypto asset in that context? Well, real estate, you're right, is one that people have spent a lot of time on from a tokenization standpoint. And the promise is really, if you can migrate the entirety of that asset onto a blockchain and enable certain of the administrative components of it to be done automatically then that's actually a really powerful proposition in terms of liquidity, in terms of enabling access to more investors, in terms of being globally interoperable, and in terms of just the ease of doing things like dividing, like being able to own a tiny sliver of a commercial property or a residential housing unit. So do you think that kind of tokenization then has an impact for many of us in our day-to-day lives? Well, it could, because what it could do is take a number of asset classes that traditionally have been off-limits to most investors, whether it be just institutional investors or institutional plus accredited, and sort of democratize those to a wider audience who can then trade and own tiny pieces of them. And so what are some of the other ways that blockchain could influence people's daily lives? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk around identity, putting identity, like our driver's license, on blockchain. I think some Eastern European countries are trying to do that with property records, What examples do you think are real and have a lot of potential? Yeah. Well, the identity is an interesting one that you bring up. There's a lot of people trying to tackle that. But the problem is if you don't create a single system that effectively can be winner-take-all, 
then you're going to have the same fragmented database problem that you have today. So it has to either be interoperable or you have to have one winner. Meaning with the government. Or the government, exactly. So the government is a natural initiator of such a network. To date, we haven't really seen that happen anywhere, but they would be a logical source of that. Now, that would sound like anathema to a lot of the sort of more puritanical early members of the blockchain community that they're concept had been hijacked by governments, you know, the least trustworthy of all actors, to build a network like this. But we'll see. In terms of day-to-day life impact, and I think this is one of the areas where the hype for blockchain got most overblown, where you had people at a certain phase in the peak of the euphoria claiming that blockchain was going to one day, you know, do your laundry and wash your dishes. And that was just (laughs) never the case. And so when you boil down to it, there are many good use cases, and there are many not good use cases that have been proposed. I have two favorites. One is in payments. And people do talk a lot about this. I'm hardly the first to suggest that. But retail remittances, if you think of that, $700 billion notional volume market. Of people sending money abroad to family members who live elsewhere. That's primarily what it is. And, of course, many Americans have never quite had to realize how bad the international payment system is because they don't have to send a lot of money abroad. Me being from Canada, I've experienced the pain that most (laughs) people living abroad have of just how terrible that system is. But you have a $700 billion notional market, and to send $200 on average costs you 700 basis points a day, which is absolutely massive tax, basically, on people trying to send money back home. And not only that, but it's slow. It's three to four days. It's lacking transparency. It's high failure rates. And then you go to corporate cross-border payment market, and that's $20 trillion notionally. And so fees are not as high there, but they're still high. And settlement's not as slow, but it's still slow. And so you have this massive opportunity where blockchain, there's potential. It's not clear who's going to succeed in doing that, but there's certainly potential and a lot of people trying to build a network, which blockchain enables, of real-time payments at near zero cost. So as you're thinking about use cases, you have to identify where those conditions you talked about exist, siloed systems, an opportunity to reduce costs, for example, but also the incentives. So for Mm -hmm. example, in payments, the example you just shared, not necessarily a lot of incentives by those who pocket that 700 basis points Mm -hmm. to reduce that. Mm -hmm. And if they own the rails, then what, we have to have an entirely new system Mm -hmm. come about to be adopted. So how do you think about where the incentives can be kind of overcome, where you can have new systems and applications? Well... For a while, they've been able to be complacent because there was, as you described, a lack of incentive to move. But now, with a number of blockchain projects trying to disrupt this, many with significant resourcing and some major institutions behind them, the pressure's finally on. And I think if you hadn't seen it up till now, the banks realizing that they had to get their act together on this, you're starting to see it. And I think the Fed coming out with their plan is one example of a response that acknowledges that traditional payment infrastructure has to be better or it's going to get displaced. So do you think central banks will start adopting blockchain at some point? You mentioned the Fed has come out with a plan. So what's your view on that? Well, it'll be another fascinating area to watch. And there have been a ton of them, obviously, who have experimented in some form or another with it, and specifically in many cases looking at central bank-issued digital currency, which on its surface has some pretty compelling benefits if you talk about detecting tax evasion and criminal activity, but also just bringing the economy in a payments context into digitally native format in an increasingly digital age. 
so I think we'll see that continue to be a story. So you mentioned downside risks, and the downside risks people were most concerned about five years ago or 11 years ago when the blockchain first came to be were quite different than those today. Then it was hard to imagine that any central bank, much less the Fed, would think of even adopting it or experimenting with it. So what do you think those risks are at this point in time? Well, I think in many ways, risks in this industry are similar to what they were. It's just that the scope and scale has blown out. So whereas, you know, five years ago, in sort of early days of crypto, everyone was focused on custody. But that was how do you keep exchanges from getting hacked? And how do you build secure mm-hmm. cold wallets for individuals? Now, it's still custody, but it's how do you build bulletproof custody solutions that are institutional grade that large FIs can actually get comfortable FIs with? FIs, financial institutions. Financial institutions. So the difference is the threshold is way higher in the latter case because I know that I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and find out that my Apple shares got hacked and went missing from the DTCC. And, and the industry, what is the DTCC? That is basically the depository that keeps track of who owns what shares in the U.S. market. And that's the threshold that the crypto and blockchain industry is going to need to get to, whether that's for traditional crypto or for tokenized financial assets. Okay, so let me ask you one last question, and then we'll end with a rapid-fire round. So we talked about how there was a lot of enthusiasm about crypto in 2008 with the initiation of the birth of Bitcoin, if you will, a lot of excitement in 2015, 2016, and then now people kind of roll their eyes. It feels like blockchain is a tired buzzword. So where do you think we are in the hype cycle and where do you think it's going? It's been fascinating to watch the hype cycle in this technology because even though blockchain and crypto are fundamentally distinct concepts that may ultimately have different endings, blockchain hype cycles very much tracked Bitcoin's cycles. And we've had three of those in its 10-year history, the first being from inception basically through 2011, and the second peaking in late 2013, troughing in 2015, and then of course the third peaked in sort of December of 17. And so for the last year and a half, that's where this trough of disillusionment has really set in, where people have started to tire of the buzz and question whether this was going to be anything. But just as is typical in sort of that classic Gartner hype cycle. As that is happening on the ground, fundamentals are actually improving. So speed, privacy, security, scalability, and real development is happening. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to see widespread adoption. There's a lot that still needs to happen, but we're certainly starting to see meaningful progress. It's exciting. So a lot to come in 2020 and beyond. I think so. So I'm going to end with a rapid-fire round, and I'm going to ask you some more personal questions. You ready? Okay. Okay, so I know that you started a brewery before <laughs> you came to BlackRock. It's a little different, yeah. Yeah. So what did you learn from that experience? Well, a lot. It was a lot harder than expected. And having some entrepreneurial experience, and this was a fun side project with college friends that kind of grew, but learning what it's like to run a business and understanding that when you're on the ground, it's sort of organized chaos in a way that you didn't appreciate mm-hmm. when I was you know, an investor. It was a lot. What's your favorite kind of beer to drink? Other than Naughty Otter? Yeah, which is your beer. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Um, Well, I'd say, and this is sort of heretical in the craft brewing space, but I do in the summer enjoy light lagers, but for the most part, Belgian wheat beers would be my favorite. Okay. Speaking of other countries, because you didn't name an American beer, you're from Canada. What do you miss most about Canada? Probably friends and family and Saturday night hockey. Okay. 
So even though you're from Canada, you are a political junkie, specifically American politics. Mm. There's a lot of that going on at the moment. So I know I see you following it all the time. If you were a candidate, what would your campaign song be? Yeah, well, American politics is certainly greater entertainment value than the Canadian version. But um, (laughs) I don't know if that's ever going to be a thing. But probably who says you can't go home with Bon Jovi uh, (laughs) because I wouldn't be running in this country. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ravi, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management, North Asia Limited, and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management, Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.